another episode Behind the Vinyl with Darren and Nicholas. Alrighty, guys, we're back with another episode of Behind the Vinyl. Uh, Nicholas and Darren here, and um, all the way from uh, beautiful New York is Michael Alago. Hello, mate. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, New York City. I am in my quarantined apartment. And um, looking out at the, on the terrace, and it's a very beautiful day, and uh, it's all all right. I like my solitude. Yeah. <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably for the wrong reasons, but anyway. Hi. Wait, wait, where are you now? Are you in? Are you in Manhattan, or you're in Brooklyn, or? No, no, no. I live in Manhattan. I live right above the West Village in Chelsea, and oh, uh, I've been in this place for about twenty-five years now. Love it. Love but, it. Yeah. But, but you're just, are you just in your apartment now or are you walking about in town or is it a total lockdown? Um, well, let's see. New York State, there's been certain areas in New York State that have gotten an okay to be outside. New York City, where I am, it's not really, it's not, it's not really a lockdown, but it's a very cautious, if you are going out, you must wear a face covering and you should really wear gloves if you're going to any kind of grocery store, pharmacy. And I always, on top of that, have sanitizer in my pocket. I mean, you just really have to be cautious because, you know, unfortunately, I've heard of people who get sick on a Wednesday and they're dead on Monday. It's, yeah. a, it's very tricky. It's very... Uh, Excuse me. It's very contagious, and um, we really just have to be so careful uh, all over the world, you know. Yeah, true. That's crazy. And, and since there isn't a, a a vaccine or a pill yet, a lot of places are like a ghost town. You know, we can't congregate via theater, uh, Broadway concerts whether they're large or small concerts people are people are scared you know yeah people are scared so we just do the best that we can and to answer your question i only go out when necessary because i have a compromised immune system so right. I'm, i'm lucky that i have a terrace so i could just space out and just sit out there and read a book or read the new york times or just close my eyes and be quiet right yeah. right So, so every, everyone out there listening, um, don't turn off. Listen to this interview. But as soon as you do that, then go and check out on Netflix, uh, Who the Fuck is That Guy? And you'll get a comprehensive um, um, idea of, of who Michael Alago is. And then go and pick up his book, I Am Michael Alago. Um, because I'm, I'm guessing that uh, he's probably, his, his music visionary has touched us all you know, that are listening to this show today. And so that's what we kind of wanted to dig a little bit about that. And because um, your your life really is a, a, a roller coaster of, of um, crazy rock and roll. Um, roller, roller coaster is a good word. <laughs> so, you know, you know, at the time we put up, oh, who the fuck is that guy? The fabulous journey of Michael Alago. Um, I always let people know when they're listening to us, about the full name because after we did that there are other people who started putting on who the fuck is that guy so there's a wrestler and there's all these other people so i always tell people to put my name in there as well as that who the fuck is that guy and the book i am michael alago breathing music 
signing Metallica, Beating Death, is available on Amazon.com right now. Came out March 25th, and uh, I'm doing everything online these days, as you can tell, because I'm here with you.
so let's um look we're going to jump straight straight into metallica and then we're going to go back because i've got a lot of a lot of questions back beforehand um you you signed which is a little bit unorthodox you signed metallica um when they were already signed to uh uh to megaforce um for ride the lightning so ride the lightning was out and had been out for two months and then you signed them um let's go back how how did you how did you find out about them in the first place Sure. Uh, my friend Phil Cavano and I, Phil uh, is in Monster Magnet. He wasn't in Monster Magnet back then. It's 1982. I still live in Brooklyn. And we go over to Lemoore, which was um, the rock capital of the world, um, <laughs> to see Metallica. And um, we had heard about them. And uh, we wanted to see them live. We did. It blew our minds. Um, I thought the next step with them was going to be that I was going to book them at the Ritz where yes. I was working. I booked this nightclub. I was the assistant music director there from 1980 to 1983. Didn't happen. Fast forward. It's uh, 1983 now. And I get my job as an A&R executive at Elektra Records, um, major I was doing some business on the West Coast, and I went to see the guys again at the Stone in San Francisco. Absolutely blew my mind, you know. Uh, seeing these young, you know, young people in '83. I was a young person. If I was 23, they were 21 and 22. And uh, you know, James is an extraordinary frontman. Always has been. He is a ringleader. He knows how to get the audience involved. Um, but they all had a certain charisma about them that radiated from the stage. After the show, I gave Lars my card. Um, he almost couldn't believe that, like, I was the guy from Electra Records because I didn't look like an executive. You know, I probably had on a Plasmatics T-shirt and jeans. And he was like, okay. Fast forward again. Uh, at my position at Electra, I become friends with Johnny Z from Megaforce Records. We become friends and colleagues very quickly. You know, John had this independent label called Megaforce. He was putting out records like Metallica, Anthrax, uh, Raven, Testament, all that good stuff. Um, but he was independent, and they didn't have the means to get those artists to the next level financially. So um, John sent me a box of records one day and he thought Raven was going to be the biggest band in the whole world. And he said, "Come, I need some money. Could we do some demos? We did demos. I gave him $5,000. He gave me back five terrific songs. The problem was I had already heard Kill Em All um, uh, and I saw Metallica twice already. And uh, I knew I had to have these people in my life. We're fast forwarding one more time to 1984. And Lars gives me a call and wants to know if I'm still interested in them. I said, yes. He said, they're doing a Megaforce night at the Roseland Ballroom on West 52nd Street in New York City. By the way, Roseland Ballroom does not exist anymore. They like friggin' wrecked the place, tore it down. Shame on New York City. Um, it was a play. It was a, a, a ballroom that had been there 50 years or so. Anyway, Lars um, wanted to know if I was still interested. I said yes. The only problem was they were still signed 
to Megaforce. Um, I had to have that unfortunate conversation with Johnny Z. It didn't really go too well. Um, but we'll uh, condense the story. I, I wound up not signing Raven. Um, as you know, uh, I signed Metallica that evening, practically. And um, as they say, the rest is history. There was a financial deal struck between Electra and Megaforce. Every, he walked away financially satisfied. Um, right. The beauty of that night, just one more second, please, um, is that that evening, Raven got signed to Atlantic Records, uh, Anthrax got signed to Island Records, and I signed Metallica to Elektra. And that signing kind of changed the face of rock and roll, changed the course of um, heavy metal and what people were listening to. Um, their ears were opened up even more because Metallica were anything but traditional, as we know. So I think, I, I think I'm wondering I your story in a very long-winded way.
I couldn't tell you. I don't remember. I uh, know. Well, that you know, I didn't deal with a lot of the finance stuff. I was always uh, uh, in the creative end of things. But I'm sure it was a big deal that was also financially satisfied by Electra because you know, once we signed them, um, we wound up putting out Ride the Lightning. We went backwards and picked up Kill 'Em All, and then we started uh, making. Uh, um, Master of Puppets in 1986. Um, what was your question again, Nicholas? No, I'm just wondering, since uh, it said somewhere that it was an eight-album deal, I'm just wondering, ah. you as an AR, I mean, uh, how big of a deal could you sign and, and, and things like that? I mean, how much power did you have as an A&R? Well, my power as an A&R executive was strictly that I let the chairman know I wanted to sign them. He knew what was happening. He said yes, but I don't really deal, you know, business affairs hates when the A&R people get involved in their shit. So I really just, I just all along made sure that the deal was going through. It was a big deal. And um, I just stayed in the creative end of it all. Hmm. We're also talking um, with... We're talking. This is uh, this is before um, everything took off. You know, before Metallica took off, before the whole metal thing took off. Um, what was it like going into like to your executives, to your chairman, and um, getting them to pick up an album that had already been picked up? That it was two months in in releasing. Um, they'd sold what upwards of seventy thousand records, or they they shipped seventy thousand records. Mm -hmm. That's um, that's quite a quite a quite a well done from your part for, for convincing them to, to have faith in you. Sure. You know, um, Bob Krasnow, who was our chairman at the time, brilliant, brilliant man, brilliant executive, loved art and music, and he knew how to merge art and commerce. Um, when I went to his office to talk to him about Metallica, uh, there was already this underground metal buzz about them. Flyers were being shared. All the bands were doing that. Cassettes were being shared. And, you know, Bob trusted the A&R department that you were either going to sink or swim. I intended on swimming. And I just had to convince him that this was the thing to do. He agreed. And we just moved forward. It really almost was that easy because Bob had a certain faith in me that I would be doing the right thing. <laughs> so. Was there any other majors that you knew of that were sniffing around? Well, a lot of other majors would like to tell you that they were. <laughs> no, not, no, not really. I think, I think that evening there were a few other labels that may have been at the event at Roseland, but no, no, not really. And you know, after Roseland, the next day, 
Uh, they were in my office, you know, where they were in the conference room. We had beer. We had Chinese food. You know, Cliff Burton wanted to know if I could give him some Simon and Garfunkel records. I said, darling, we don't have Simon and Garfunkel. They're on CBS. So, you know, Lars and the other guys knew, they all knew a little bit about the history of Electra Records. So I figured the things that I could offer them, remember it's 1984, cassette and vinyl of The Doors, The Stooges, the MC5, um, Cliff wanted stuff that was esoteric. So we had a label that we distributed called Nunsuch. That was very esoteric. So I gave him a box of that. And, um, you know, they were just lovely young people who um, felt it felt like uh, from that day that they really didn't leave my office. And soon after that gig, very soon, same time as myself, um, Q Prime Management came aboard. And yeah. that was also another brilliant move to have me at Electra and Cliff and Peter at Q Prime on their side. You know, you could tell this was a band that was going places quickly. Yeah, yeah. Did did you um did you that was one of my questions because I, I knew that Q Prime come in just after you signed them immediately. Was, was that, was that an, an introduction that come from you or did you have any anything to do with that or are they uh, not really? Up? They were also smart cookies, and I vaguely remember Cliff coming to the Cliff uh, Bernstein coming to the office and was um, having a meeting with our chairman, and I think I was involved in one of those meetings, and then Cliff would come back to my office and we would just talk about how exciting this all was because you know Cliff is a, a metalhead and he loves music and he is is a brilliant mind, um, so everything just. You know, when the universe, uh, how do you say, it's like the universe provides. It's like when things are supposed to happen, they really do happen. And when you have all these people who know and in the music business what to do with artists, stuff just happens. And I think I answered your question. Absolutely. <laughs> but I'm thinking, interesting also that, like, uh, it's you and, and you want to sign them to Electra, a major label. Uh, there was never any, any talk amongst Metallica that, okay, so Electra want to give us this. Let's see what some other label's going to give us. They just went with you straight away. Well, you know, you know, we could say, well, there might have been. They had a wonderful attorney in Peter Paterno, great guy. Um, but you know what? I was very convincing. I was the same age as them. I didn't look like a corporate person. And I think they knew that I understood the music. And I promised them that I would do every single thing to help them get where they wanted to go. So I, you know, to be honest, um, even though it's a very long time ago, like 36 years ago, I don't, there was never, from what I remember, a problem about, oh boy, they're gonna go to another label. I really don't think that was it at all. It was just really all about timing and then understanding that I was a young person who understood them, uh, Q Prime coming in, and it just, it was a confluence of things that immediately started working together.
And, you know, after I signed them, everybody else wanted their own version of Metallica. But instead, <laughs> they got other labels. And there's a funny story, because after that, I wanted to sign Megadeth. <laughs> and I played, I played Killing is My Business and Business is Good for Krasnow. And he just looked at the cover, and he thought the name of that record was the greatest thing he ever heard. But... That's another story for later. So, you know, at that point in time, my late great friend, <clears throat> excuse me, Tim Carr at Capitol Records signed Megadeth. Um, Def Jam signed Slayer. Uh, you know, I then, I then signed Metal Church and Flotsam and Jetsam. And, and, and everything in the metal scene was big and it was happening. It was just an awesome time period for that kind of music. Yeah. What, right. what, well, how was um, how was the name Michael um, Alago inside um, Time Warner at that time? You must have been like like the golden child, you know, for a record that's that's reacting. I, you know, we both Nicholas and I know what it's like to be working in the music industry, and you you have an album and it's it's going through the roof, and then you um, you work on Master of Puppets and it's just becoming the biggest record. It must have been a great time for you in that office well, i was having a ball i was young i was crazy and you could have called me alcoholica too uh, <laughs> you know at first when i had to make one of my first presentations to everybody marketing promotion radio publicity in the conference room uh everyone like kind of like nodded their head i'm sure some people who were a little more corporate than others didn't get it uh some people wanted me to edit songs and i thought oh no if i even considered that management and the band would like want to kill me um i i think everybody knew and i had to convince everybody that this was not a radio band at that moment whatsoever so it was mandatory that everyone go see the band live as per our chairman Bob Krasnow, so that everybody could feel that electricity that they were generating to the audience, that it just, the, the audience just started growing and growing. Um, so it, it was an incredible feeling. I had only had my job one year when I signed them. So, of course, Bob trusted me to do whatever I want. Now, of course, that was the biggest signing of my career. Awesome, because that led to so many other things. It, it led to other young artists wanting to sign with me. Because, you know, Metal Church, they hear Metallica on Electra. Of course they want to be on Electra. You know, Usted sends me, I think they only had a one album deal with Brian over at Metal Blade. And all of a sudden I get a package from Jason Newstead. Another young, charismatic character. And um, I, I hear uh, uh, Doomsday for the Deceiver. And I think, wow, I got to sign these young people. I saw photographs of them. They were getting pressed. I go see them at some, I think, a place called the Mason Jar in Arizona. And I fell in love with them as well. Um, so... At that point, I was a very happy camper, and I was um, just loving my job. And funny story, just for one second, when I got the A&R job, I had to call a friend of mine and say, what does A&R mean? Well, they, they laughed in my face. And for our audience out there who doesn't know what 
A&R means. A&R means artist and repertoire. The A&R department is the most important department at a record company. If you don't have great records and you don't have great artists, it's, it's, it's pointless. And thank God, even though, like I said, everything wasn't as major as Metallica, but I feel like I always made really good decisions in the signings that I made. And I, I, I had that, that A&R position, whether it was at Elektra, Geffen, Uni for one minute, Palm Pictures, that went for a good 25 or so years. Get it
you know, it's obvious in your um, your your catalogue of signings. Like, for instance, uh, White Zombie, and we'll just touch on this quick, and then we'll go back to Metallica. Like, you, you signed White Zombie, where they were basically the band that nobody wanted, and and you managed to sign them um, on Los Exorcisto, which went on to sell. It was a multi-million selling record in the end, and then they released um, Astro Creep, which was yeah. Yeah. just mega for them. Um, so let, let's talk about that. What what was it about them? Just quickly before we go back to Metallica. Um, well, by then you'd moved to Geffen. There's, there's nothing quick about White Zombie, but I will, <laughs> I will make it as quick as possible. I already, there's an extraordinary, um, I'll be a little shameless right now. So y'all got to go pick up my book. I am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. And there's an extraordinary chapter in the book on the making of La Sexorcisto and about the signing. Um, Let's see, my friend Daniel Ray, who was in Masters of Reality, and he wrote a couple of songs and produced the Ramones and Iggy. Um, he was shopping three bands in New York, Circus of Power, Raging Slab, and White Zombie. Nobody wanted White Zombie. Daniel got Raging and Circus signed to RCA. Um, so he said, Michael, there's a band you have to go see. I think you're going to fall in love with him. I go to a little dingy hole in the wall. It was underneath a restaurant in the East Village of New York City, and they're already playing. And there's sweat, and there's dreadlocks, and there's no songs. It was, <laughs> it was friggin' noise. And you know, it was a sound that I responded to. And I thought, these people are cool. And I talked to them when it was over, and they, would, they were they were really just the sweetest people ever. Um, Rob and I started talking immediately. He convinced me that they were going to be big, and uh, early on, he said he wanted to make films. I don't know. I just fell in love with his charisma as well. We did a demo tape. Um, I loved the songs. And that demo tape led to uh, making La Sexorcista Devil Music Volume 1. We hired Andy Wallace because we loved the sound of the Slayer material that he produced. And um, it's such a long story because at one point, and I'll say this for the audience, because now I have to convince them to buy my book. You know, we made the record, we put it out, and it stalled at like 180,000 units. So at another marketing meeting at Geffen, everyone looked at me like, um, yeah, you were the one saying that this is going to sell a million units. So I'll leave it at a little cartoon, two cartoon characters named Beavis and Butthead on MTV, which MTV then was very important to the record companies. They start playing the single, and that made the record explode. And within that year, I think we might have sold two million records, but there's so much more to that story, but I'm gonna leave it for another time and <laughs> if people purchase the book, because it's a great, great rock and roll story in the book.
Well, let's let's swing back to Metallica. Um, so, you you lived out the uh, ride the lightning, and then you were about to send them back into record Master of Puppets, which, which ultimately is one of the greatest records of all time. Um, there's been talk of Getty Lee. That, nearly, that's nearly, correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With, without a doubt, one of the greatest records of all time, and not sure. and not heavy metal. It's one of the greatest records. Full stop. Um, now, uh, there's talk of Getty Lee um, was in the um, in the, the realm, for, yeah, in the mix to be the producer. Now, did you have anything to do being A&R with, with them going back to Denmark or and, and Getty's involvement? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was talk about him working on the record. Obviously, as we know, it didn't happen. Um, you know, at that point in time when I signed them, they didn't want to be bothered in the studio. They were like, can we just do what we do? And um, I had to really strongly think about that because here we are, a major label. You know, you can't just leave an artist to their own devices in the studio. Now, the beauty of the Metallica was, I think what I recognized what was on each record, their songwriting skills just kept getting better and better. Mm. And they wanted to go back and work with Fleming again. And I believe they also, didn't Michael Wagner work on that record in the end? Michael Wagner did, yep. And we love Michael Wagner. We love Michael Wagner. So between a Fleming and a Wagner and, I kind of had that confidence that it would all go well. So I said, Lars, if you don't want me in the studio, I'm going to okay that. I don't know what Krasnow is going to say, but as we go along, you have to send me dats, cassettes, whatever the hell you want to send. I have to know what's going on. So he sent me dats and cassettes and whatever the hell else format he sent of bits of songs. So I had to live with hearing arrangements of, you know, tunes um, that way. But everything was becoming so, uh, play on words, masterful. They were growing at a, in songwriting at such a quick speed that I just kind of threw up my hands and I knew that they were in great hands with Michael and Fleming. And as we all know, uh, as you said, uh, Darren, a few seconds ago, they wound up making one of the greatest records in rock and roll. I mean, and everybody knew from that first record to the third record, the skills were huge, huge. Yep. So, yeah. How was that when you presented it to uh, to everyone at the at the label? Well, I think everybody thought the same thing that I thought was that you, you know, Ride the Lightning is still my favorite record. Um, but it's like asking, like, who's your favorite kid? You know, you can't really do that. I presented it that day. Cliff, Cliff Bernstein was there with me in the, in the, in the uh, conference room. And people were in awe. People loved the record. And everybody knew what they had to do to make this record major. Right. 
I, I want to know, um, how did you feel about um, the relationship between uh, Lars and James since they, they were and are so different? Lars came from this artsy jazz family. Uh, James came from this really, uh, you know, Christian science, tough yes. upbringing. They are quite different. How did you feel about that in the beginning? I, I well, well, I uh, had I feel about that. I had no feelings about that. But what I knew was these were two young people who recognized each other's talent, and uh, you know, being twenty one, twenty two, twenty three years old, they immediately formed a bond, uh, a connection, and. Um, you know, I don't know what else to really say about that. Uh, I think as young people, they respected each other's differences. And uh, I don't know if there's anything more to say about that. Because as we all know, with all great bands, not everything is easy. And especially with a band like Metallica, when you talk about not easy from 1986 to 2020, you have to have a certain respect for your fellow bandmate or else everything would have fallen apart. And I think even as young people, they were smart enough to know, you know, we're not the same people, but we all love the same bands. We all are loving what we are creating here. So it all just moved forward, sometimes beautifully and simply. And as we know, sometimes not.
Okay, yes, I've loved the Misfits since 1983. They were friends of mine early on. When I was at Geffen, I had the opportunity to sign them. This is the version of the Misfits without Glenn Danzig. They had uh, hired a young man named Michael Graves to sing for them. Um, I, made, I, made, I made a record with them called American Psycho. And uh, my friend Daniel Ray I, uh, mi uh, produced the record. And Andy Wallace, once again, mixed the record. Uh, it's funny, I was uh, going through my vinyl the other day, and I found a acetate from MasterDisc. Um, and uh, I believe Howie Weinberg mastered the record. And I pulled the acetate, the lacquers, as they call them, out. And, you know, you, you get two lacquers. One is side one, and one is side two. And then I smelled them. And it smelled like the day that I got the lacquers because they'd just been sitting in this, uh, you know, 12 by 12 cover for yeah. all those years. Um, it was also a tricky thing signing the Misfits to a major label. Um, we made the record. It did okay. Nobody cared about the Misfits at Geffen the way I cared about the Misfits. So, um, unfortunately, after that record, uh, I had to release them from Geffen. I was not a happy camper, but uh, here it is. Once again, I'll say it's 2020, and we all remain friends. Uh, I think they're one of the world's best bands. Uh, it was gratifying to see them last year. Well, maybe it's like two years ago now. Um, in the, these reunion gigs with Glenn Danzig and uh, Misfits Rule, man. One of the greatest bands ever. Again, a band totally unique unto themselves. There's nobody like Misfits. Come on. Anyway. Well, where, 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 did you, where did you first see them? Did you? Because um, well, yeah. actually... I, I, think it was, I think it was at CBGB I first saw them, yeah. People ask me if I saw them at Max's Kansas City, but no, I never did. And I'm sure at Max's, there was just a handful of people there. Um, well, there always was just a handful of people with, with Misfits up until this last reunion tour, which was just gigantic. Sure. Um, well, I mean, people did go see the Misfits back in the day, yes, Early on, it was a handful. And then after that, the Misfits went on the road with Michael around 97. I don't remember how long those tours lasted. And then they were dormant up until 2017, 2018. And the incredible thing about that is once the word got out via social media, they were able to play 18,000 seaters. Yeah. I mean, that's friggin' extraordinary, man. And they did. And those events, they were events. They sold out. Uh, not the band, the venues. The, ben the venues sold out. And it, what the, one of the extraordinary parts of these shows was the staging. The staging, and I'm just going to compare it to if you were in Las Vegas at midnight, if you were in Tokyo at midnight, if you were at Times Square in New York City at midnight and seeing flashing lights and billboards that were huge. The Misfits hired, I don't know who they hired to do this 
extraordinary staging, but that's what it felt like. There were black and white movies. There was uh, old clips of The Misfits. There were movies. I mean, it was so exciting that, um, you know, you just wish that here we are in 2020. Uh, if we're all real good, let's say our prayers and hope that misfits come back in 2021. It was an, it was extraordinary. I guess I, I only went to maybe four of those gigs, but I was thrilled and so was everybody else. Amazing. Um, so, so everyone, everyone out there, um, Michael spent a lot of time back in the early 80s at the likes of CBGBs, uh, Max's Kansas City. Um, so what, how was that really? Like you hear a lot, of, a lot of talk about how bad it was and how dangerous it was and the, the rivalry between Max's Kansas City and, um, um, and CBGBs. Did that really exist? Yeah. Uh, yes, there was a rivalry between both venues and really people make it out to be more than it was. What it was, was they were so physically close to each other that, you know, if you're going to play CBs, you want basically what they consider a sold out event. So you yeah. would just be watering down the amount of people coming to each venue. So it just became a thing. Well, if you play Max's Kansas City, you can't play CBGB. Whatever. Um, yes, it was very dangerous back then <clears throat> in the 70s. The Bowery was um, dirty, uh, lots of drugs, lots of homeless people, uh, lots of trouble. Um, I was then a 15, 16-year-old young person. Oh, wait a minute. I can't believe it says 11-11. I keep getting 11-11 all the time. I guess, well, it's, I guess it's good because we're all here together. And you know what that means. You obviously me. know what 11-11 means. Help me. Go. Because everybody has a different version of that. 11-11 means that you're on the right path for yourself. There you go. Well, then I'm glad we're all doing this together. Uh, so it's filthy dirty down there. I was a young teenager who had no fear whatsoever. I'd take the train from Brooklyn with my little knapsack and my Minolta camera, and I would just go out, and I, always, I just always wanted to be where the music was. You know, I quickly found out about a weekly newspaper called The Village Voice, and The Village Voice was filled with music, art, theater, pornography, and politics. I could have given a damn about politics, but I loved all the other things that it, it showcased. So I started, I went to the music section and I saw an ad for CBs one day. Oh my gosh, that was, that was early. It was 1970, oh boy, five or six. I was underage. My friend Leslie from New Haven, Connecticut took me there. We saw Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers after Johnny left the New York Dolls. He formed the Heartbreakers. Richard Hell from Richard Hell and the Voidoids was still in that band. And then Richard went on to get signed to Sire Records. And he made a landmark record called Blank Generation. Um, extraordinary. Um, but I had no fear. I just went to where the music took me. And because I did that, I got to see so many people at CBGB in the early days. Patti Smith, the Ramones, Blondie. Uh, at some point, um, Haley Crystal, the owner, knew there was this 
British punk rock thing happening. So he brought over Eddie and the Hot Rods, Penetration, X-Ray Specs, um, Chelsea. I mean, there was so much happening that every night of the week, you could be going out somewhere, whether it was Madison Square Garden to the big venues to see people like an ACDC, or you were going to the nightclubs, the east side, the west side, 8 o'clock, 11 o'clock. And then by that time, we were already drunk and out of it that we would go to after hours. And then by that time, I either blacked out or... I don't know, fell asleep on the subway going home. But I always had a great time, and I always went to where the music was. Do you, do you, uh, did you ever come across, I can't remember her name, uh, she's the actress in Silence of the Lambs, and you, she used to take a lot of photos of the hardcore scene in New York. Jodie Foster? No, no, not Jodie Foster. Uh, the the one who's in the, the the girl that gets kidnapped in Silence of the Lambs. And she's like in the hole. Exactly. Correct. With the little dog. Of, yeah, she took a lot of photos of the hardcore scene in New York during the early '80s. What's her name? Karen. Oh shit! I can't remember. Yeah, we're we're gonna both not remember that. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. No, there were a lot of people who did document that time. Yeah. Yeah. which is incredible because a lot of people say, oh, I wish I was there. But what I tell young people is, I'm sorry you weren't there. But uh, there are a lot of books out there on that period of time. And the beauty of technology is that if I say to you, go to YouTube and pull up The Dead Boys 1977, of course it's not the same, but you're going to get a, a taste. You're going to get a flavor of the energy of what was going on back then. And, you know, basically you could find everything on YouTube. You could find the Plasmatics. You could find the Dead Boys. You could find Patti Smith. You could the Ramones, the early Ramones. They would do like 18-minute sets and play 25 songs. I mean, it was nuts. So, you know, one way or another... We get to hear the music then, from then, now.
another thing is um, people might think that you're, you're out of the industry, but you're still got your fingers in the industry at the moment, correct? Sure. I did A&R for 25 years. After 2005, I started taking photographs and I have uh, three books out. But, I, you know, I just love music. So it was never going to be like I was not going to work in music anymore. You know, I got very ill and almost died in the 90s. Uh, but fast forward 2005, I left. I officially left working at record companies. And so I'm just moving right along. I'm still going out. And 2009 and 2010, Cindy Lauper called me. She loved the work that I have done with previous artists. She knew I was very capable of working with her. So we made a dance record in 2009 called Bring You to the Brink. And in 2010, she called me again and um, asked me if uh, I would A&R a blues album for her, which was rather funny because she never made a blues album and I never made a blues album. We had a good laugh about it. And then we did some serious research. Again, I'll be shameless. In my book, I Am Michael Alago, there's an entire chapter dedicated to Cyndi Lauper and the making of Memphis Blues, which got nominated for a Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Album. Um, we didn't win the Grammy, but it signaled to us that we did great work. And also, um, the way I said to you, like, there's a lot of stuff that went on into making White Zombies Less Exorcisto. There was a lot of stuff going on in the making of Memphis Blues. We were down in Memphis. We explored the Civil Rights Museum, um, 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 uh, the Lorraine Motel where Dr. Martin Luther King was killed. We met people from that period of time down there. It was very heavy and it, 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 it inspired us to make the record that Cindy knew she wanted to make. And then fast forward one more time, two years ago, a little band from South Florida. Um, I got interested in my cousin Julie sent me an independent release and she said, my neighbor's son has a band. Yeah, I've heard that for 30 years. Most of the time it's rotten. So she <laughs> sent me a CD by a band called Ether Coven. They put out the record themselves called There Is Nothing Left For Me Here. I put it on and I, again, thank goodness, I lost my mind. And I thought, wow, these are people that, you know, my tastes are very black and white. I don't get crazy for, for artists like all the time. I was always very uh, specific about who I signed. I didn't sign lots of things over the years. I get this CD, I fall in love with it. It's very heavy. It's very uh, swans, crowbar, I hate God. Uh, scour. And I thought, I gotta go to Florida. So I go to Fort Lauderdale, I see them and it's very dark, it's very majestic, it's very brutal, it is not radio friendly at all whatsoever, and I thought, I gotta have these people in my life. So, I uh, got them signed to Century Media, and we made a record that came out a few months ago called Everything is Temporary Except Suffering. And it was produced by uh, Eric Rattan, Morbid Angel, um, in Florida. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, it's an extraordinary record. So yes, I keep my hands dabbled in uh, music all the time. You know, now that we are all 
in quarantine, um, there's a, a wonderful thing that we all can go to YouTube. And just recently, um, Century Media put together a festival called the Isolation Festival. And they gathered the best of all of their bands and everybody made their little video in quarantine and it is terrific and what i loved about it was i heard about a band called the offering which i didn't know anything about i'm crazy about them now one of my all-time favorite bands voivod did something you could tell that this wasn't their thing to do this in quarantine but of course they rose to the occasion you know we got to see metallica do an acoustic version of blackened on YouTube, um, we heard, uh, I was so surprised to get this um, video one day of my friends Steve Grimmett and Nick Bocott from Grim Reaper. Them and their fellow musicians did a version of Heaven and Hell that you can get online right now. So everybody is doing something extraordinary. You know, um, uh, what's his name from Violence? Um, oh my God, this is embarrassing right now. Rob Flynn. Oh, Phil, Phil, Phil Demel? Oh, oh Rob Thank Flynn. You. Okay, we're gonna have to edit that. Uh, Phil Demel put together a, a, a slew of people with uh, Lizzie Hale singing from uh, Hailstorm. And there's something great on, on, on YouTube there. So part of the wonderful thing in this pandemic, and I'll keep it at music, is that we're getting to hear great music from casts of characters that may have never gotten together prior to this. So it, I, list, I go on YouTube all the time or I'm on social media searching out Who's doing what? Again, another long-winded answer to your question, <laughs> which I have no idea what the question was. <laughs> that was good. That's, that's what we're here for, to talk.
going to swing it all the way back now to Master of Puppets because you just touched on something and sparked something in my head. Um, two, two questions. Um, Master of Puppets and uh, Cliff Burton died, who, who was a major part of that band. Um, everyone talks about Lars and James, but everyone knows Cliff Burton really. Um, how did you feel and what did you, what did you think would happen to the band after that? And also, following that, they were joined by Jason Newstead. How did you feel about that since you had Flotsam and Jetsam? And did you foresee, okay, this is going to fuck Flotsam and Jetsam for me because Jason was the one of the main guys, the main songwriter there? Uh, so it's 1986, you know, our record, um, Master of Puppets, is charting on the Billboard charts. Um, since I think this is the beginning of the question that you asked me, um, it was... Um, September either 25th or 26th. It was a weekend uh, when I got a phone call from Cliff Bernstein and he said he had some terrible news. And the news was that uh, Cliff Burton was killed in a bus accident on the road late at night. The bus slipped on, I believe, what's called black ice. Um, and it blew everybody's mind. Remember, these are still young people. They are all brothers, basically. And how, what happens when out of the blue, you lose a brother? Cliff, they're all important in the band, but you know, Cliff was so extraordinary. He, I believe back then, he was the most prolific musician out of all four of them. And I don't mean that to be like negative. He just was. He was outrageous. You know, he really was um, a, a masterful player. Um, I mean, that day was, it was awful. Uh, so when I hung up with Cliff, I, I called Bob Kraz now. I let him know what happened. And I think I just paced in my apartment all day in disbelief that something like this could happen, but it did. I think one of the other things you asked me was, um, in sticking with this record before we get on to Jason, that uh, what was gonna happen? I think it was that Monday, either Lars called me or I called him, and I said, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <sighs> and um, I don't remember if it was a week or two or three or four later, and he said, you know, Michael, we're going to move forward. That's what we want. That's what Cliff wants. That's what the, all of us want, that uh, we didn't get this far to stop. Of course, I'm paraphrasing the words because they were 34 years ago. Um, and then again, fast forward just a little bit when Lars says, you know, we're going to do this. We need a bass player. Okay. So it was funny that if funny is the right word, or coincidental, that at the same time, uh, Brian Slagle from Metal Blade um, suggested Jason. I had now signed Flotsam and Jetsam, and I was thinking, who the heck am I gonna um, recommend? I recommended, again, my friend Phil Cavano comes into play. Mm -hmm. He was playing in a band that was on Epic Records called Blitzspear. He went out to audition. 
Uh, and finally, I said to Lars, you know what, Lars, I signed this band called Flotsam and Jetsam from Arizona, but I believe that this young person is the person for you. So between Lars hearing that from me, their A&R person, and Brian Slagle, who they have great respect for, Jason auditioned. As we all know, it wasn't easy, but he got the job. Because you know what? He was that young person who fit in with them emotionally, uh, physically, uh, had that same charisma. He was a great player. He loved Metallica already. Um, and uh, so just to go back a little bit, I mean, to go back, but uh, uh, I had to think of somebody now to replace Jason. Um, because I had just signed the band. Um, they had no problem replacing him themselves. And we went on to make a record um, uh, called No Place for Disgrace. Um, we can back, go back again to Metallica. It wasn't very easy for Jason to be in the band. Uh, they gave him a lot of flack. And I think they gave him that kind of flack was because these were young people who did not know how to deal with the hurt and the pain. So they took it out on Jason. I mean, they didn't, how do you say, they didn't mean it in the way that we think, uh, oh God, these people were so mean to him. Yeah, they were mean to him because they missed Cliff. And, you know, in those early days, it was like, you are not Cliff. You cannot replace Cliff. But, you know, a few a few couple years go by and he integrates incredibly. You know, he starts contributing to songwriting. And um, and uh, I don't know. I think I answered your question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Were you still working with them when they did Garage Days Re-Revisited? Yes, Garage Days Revisited, yes, I was there at Electra, but it, it also, again, a confluence of things were happening. I felt like I wasn't getting paid when I wanted to get paid. I was a sought-after A&R executive. I Geffen Records approached me, and um, the money was extraordinary. Um, I also loved the roster that Geffen had. It, Geffen was like Electra. We were a boot they were boutique labels, but it distributed by majors. And um, they didn't just sign anybody who came along. You know, when, when David Geffen started Geffen, um, the first three artists he signed were Elton John, Donna Summer, and John Lennon. Not too shabby. So uh, after that, when they made the Black Album, I was gone. Yeah. I was gone. I was at I was at um, Geffen, and uh, that's your answer. Absolutely. I, I, I I'm wondering, um, Jason. Going back to Jason, I mean, he must have been incredibly strong going through all of that because I think a lot of other people would have quit. Maybe. Yeah, I think a lot of other people would have collapsed. Yeah, he's such. You know, he's always been very aware, very smart. I think he knew it wasn't about him and that he had loved Metallica to begin with. So literally, he was not going to let his dream come true, get screwed up because of how 
they treated him. Now, it wasn't fun. It wasn't happy. But he just soldiered on. And, you know, what? He wound up being with them, what, a good 15 years? Yeah, yeah I think it was 13 years. Incredible, incredible, incredible to the resilience. And I always go back to saying young people because they were young. Yeah. Nobody was 30 yet, I don't think. Everybody was in their 20s making extraordinary music that the world was loving. So um, he just uh, was a tough cookie. And he just soldiered it out. And 15 years later, you know, he was still in the band. Another thing I thought of was that when Master came out, this is, this is a time of the PMRC. Mm -hmm. And there was an advisory sticker on the album that kind of made fun of the PMRC, where it said that um, the, the only song you can really play is Damage Incorporated and there aren't any shits, fucks, pisses, cunts, motherfuckers on the album. Uh, whose idea was that? Was that the band or oh, you? Uh, or no, 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 no. Come on. I'm sure it was Lars's idea, you know. Uh, yes, of course. But it was a way of them getting away with yeah. saying fuck you to the PMRC by having that sticker on there. And that just added some more of the excitement and the talk about these guys always stick to their guns. They do what they want. And we love what they do. Yeah. Love it. Um, I think we pretty much covered everything. I'm just going to throw in there, um, everyone, go and check out who the fuck is that guy, um, the uh, the Michael Lago story on uh, on Netflix, and you'll hear some Jason Newstead music on that on yes. your documentary uh, as well. Yeah, who the fuck is that guy? The fabulous journey of Michael Lago is on Netflix and it's on Amazon Prime. Um, yeah, we do it. We put a lot of Jason Newstead music in there because that was music we loved and got cleared easily. Uh, it's going strong still there. And for all of you audience out there, thank you for listening. I I, I hope I did good. And uh, there's a book out now called I Am Michael Lago: Breathing Music, Signing Metallica beating death and it has all sorts of great stories in there about my entire life up until right now and it is a great book i must say thank you so much thank you very much Alrighty, michael thank you so much for your time uh everyone go and check out uh firstly go and check out um ride the lightning master puppets uh -huh. and um and, and go out check Michael's documentary. It's a it's an amazing watch. Everyone's in it. Uh, James Hetfield, Kirk Hamilton, at Lars is in there. Doyle from the Misfits is in there. Jason Newstead's in it. Phil Anselmo. Phil Anselmo from uh, Pantera and Down is in there. Uh, John, John Joseph. It, John Lydon is in there, which we didn't get a chance to touch on. There's uh, we'll Lauper is in there. Mina Caputo from Life of Agony is in there. Uh, absolutely. And what an amazing band that life of agony were you know they still are they still are absolutely. absolutely their last record that just came out a couple months ago scars is one of the best things that they've done so yeah. Yeah. gotta give props and a holla to mia caputo uh and the, and the band life of agony because they know how to rock and roll my friends <laughs> absolutely uh michael thank you so much for your time mate it's been a pleasure and um yeah. And, and we will see everyone next week.